and welcome to the podcast by ATA Slavic Languages Division. This is Veronica de Michelis. And this is Ekaterina Howard. Our guest today is Elena Brandt. Elena is Localization Project Manager and Spanish to English Translator. She's the CEO and founder of Afterwards Translations and Assistant Professor of Translation and Localization Management at Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. Welcome, Elena. Thank you. So let's jump in and talk about um, the, the ways in which PMs and translators interact. What in your experience are the most common ways in which communications fail? Um, can I go back and say thank you very much, um, E. Katerina and uh, Veronica for having me here today. I really enjoyed speaking with the two of you at the ATA conference as well. Um, it was a wonderful opportunity and I appreciate your work. You both contribute so much to the ATA and to the field. Uh, as far as the ways in which um, communications fail between project managers and translators, I think it's easy for all of us to take for granted that communication is something that just occurs naturally and it's not something that takes work, which is not the way to think about communication and especially in terms of project management. Uh, when you look at standards even, um, standards from the International Organization of Standardization or standards from ASTM. What's really clear from those standards is that communication is something that is ongoing. It requires the work of all parties. It requires um, initiating that work of communication from the very beginning of a project, not waiting to bring people on board for things before it's too late where they might feel like they haven't had the chance to have a good say in what's going to be happening on a project. So communication and team building is something that is just, it requires a lot of work and it's, it's work that takes a lot of energy for, from all parties, for, for project managers and for translators. Um, when it comes to communication failures, I also think that um, some of the causes of those things are sort of things that are outside of all of our control. So if you look at things like terminology standardization, so this semester in my terminology management class, we're looking at um, sort of why, why organizations and why groups of professionals um, establish terminologies for the communication that they hold. And the reason that they do so is so that everyone has a common sort of set of terms to talk about the um, services that are being produced. So within a, the field of electromechanics, um, when somebody talks about a specific type of bolt, there doesn't need to be a discussion among all of the um, engineers about what is that bolt that we're talking about. They, they have a, a standardized term to name the type of bolt and then they don't have to waste their time sort of first establishing what is the, the idea that we're talking about. Within the field of localization, um, while standards like the ISO standards are very clear and they use a um, you know, set of terminology that, that we can all refer to in order to talk about processes, I think you see a lot of variance in the industry and in how people are naming things. So something like an editing phase might include um, reviewing the source against the target in one organization and editing in another organization might be um, just reviewing the target. So when we're talking to one another about the services that we're hoping to provide and we're hoping to contract for, if there's not this sort of clear set of terminology 
that all of us can rely on that really impedes sort of our ability to understand what expectations are within, um, within a specific project. Um, I think as far as that communication as well, we'll talk a little bit later. Um, thank you for sending the questions over that we were going to discuss today. You, um, or one of the things we'll talk about later is the fact that there's a lack of training in project management as well. So this, our formal training, most people are, or a lot of people are coming to the role of project management within this industry um, just sort of by accident. They, they have experience in translation, they maybe speak a couple languages, and so they um, somehow wind up being project managers. And that's not a bad thing. That's great to have a vast array of people operating in that role. But if those people don't have formal training and they don't understand sort of the best practices that we follow as localization project managers, such as developing a full specification form where we're accounting for all of the demands and requirements of a project before it starts, then that impedes communication as well. Because if you don't know the expectations that you're trying to meet of the client and you can't communicate those expectations to the people that you're working with, it's only natural that there's going to be misunderstandings that arise about what is the product that we're actually delivering, the language service product. Um, and I would also just add that we're, we're operating right now in this sort of global economic environment where common courtesy is often sacrificed for sort of rush deliveries and things like that. And so you can't really, or I don't think it's fair to expect that communication is going to be um, positive and productive if you are eliminating and sacrificing common courtesy, such as, you know, just giving somebody a phone call to let them know what's happening on a project or taking the time to really develop a sense of team. So those are, those are some of the things in my experience that impede communication. All right. Could you talk a little more about developing a sense of team? A sense of team, yes, absolutely. So team building is ongoing and it's something, that sense of team is something that you need to have before you even start a project. So that when you are actually performing on a project, especially under rush environments, there's a sense of trust between team members so that you can cut out things like common courtesies or um, things like that in order to move a project forward as quickly as you need to move it forward. If you don't already have sort of this foundation of positive communication when hopping into a project, then when you try to start taking out things like just the niceties and common courtesies, it has a greater impact on the project because all of the team members are sort of, you know, maybe feeling a little offended because somebody didn't, um, didn't, you know, check in, I don't know, there's just with those common niceties, just those, it just is, common courtesy is often I don't know, it seems to be the first thing that's lacking. So, but if you've built already and developed a strong team before starting a project, then you are able to move forward more quickly because you've got this level of trust. So the, the trust and trust development is one of those really important components of project management that is hard to teach new project managers to be able to develop within teams. Um, it's hard to develop within teams too if you don't have experience and if you don't understand as well the, I mean, we're operating in a, a global economy again where we are mediating between individuals from many different countries, many different nationalities. So if you, if you don't have a strong sense of trust between those teams where you're communicating remotely, it just, it can really, 
very easily cause a project to go sideways. So I, I can't say enough about how important trust and communication and team building is for project management. Well, it's very interesting that you mentioned that. I think Corinne McCain uh, published a blog post a while back about this common sentiment of being a cog in a machine. And that seems to be related to the the not feeling like you're a part of a team at all. Yeah. And it's easier to feel like you're not a part of the team when you're working remotely, when your team is located all over the world. And it's unfortunate that that is what ends up happening because there's so many methods through which positive communication can be achieved. Um, first of all, the common, I mean, the easy phone call. I think it's, it's interesting to me that in my project management classes, um, this semester I'm teaching, or last semester I taught uh, one of our advanced project management classes here at Miss uh, Vendor Management. It was the first time the class was run. And it seems a little bit odd to me that one of the lessons that I'm teaching in that class is that when you are first onboarding a new translator, so we're talking vendor management, talent management, we kind of um, are using both terms, both vendor management and talent management to refer to that same con concept in order to acknowledge that within the field, most people would not recognize the term talent management. They would, they would, I would say talent management and most people would say, well, what is she talking about? Well, when I say talent management, I'm talking about vendor management. And so when you are working in talent management, when you're onboarding a new translator, a piece of advice that I give to the students in my classes is that pick up is to pick up the phone and call that person so that you can begin establishing a relationship. So they know you to be a real person on the other side of the computer screen and you know them to be a real person on the other side of the uh, computer screen. And then you just continue building a positive relationship from there. I mean, we're having a conversation right now through Zoom, which is a fantastic tool. There's just so many technologies available to make positive communication happen so that we don't end up feeling like um, cogs in the machine as, as um, Corinne was talking about. I must say that as a former human resources manager, I really like the word talent better than vendor. Yeah. Uh, it just signals, um, you know, we, we respect you. You're, you're someone um, who provides valuable input and valuable services rather than just a cog in the machine. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's just, not yeah, that's not a term that's originating from me. I'm sort of following mm -hmm. the early lead of some practitioners out here on the West Coast, and so yeah, I think it will be interesting if we can all move toward adopting that terminology. That'd be a good shift, absolutely. Yeah. And um, I I really uh, like what you said earlier about um, understanding each other's work and the demands of. Um, our work because we often I think all of us who are practicing translators we often hear um, there's some animosity sometimes when it comes to you know project managers versus translators and um, people being unhappy with um, the um, services of uh, translators and, and the others being unhappy with the way they're treated maybe by project mm -hmm. managers <laughs> so um, what would you uh, say are things that translators need to know about the work of project managers? Maybe uh, no one told them about it. Um, I'll reiterate things that people talk about in the industry a lot. There's a lot of um, people talking about sort of the realities of the role of the project manager. Um, I can reiterate that project managers manage multiple projects simultaneously across time zones. 
Um, and so where a translator is embedded in sort of, um, if you think about a translator in terms of the two, of two languages only. So of course there are many talented translators who speak multiple languages. I'm very, very jealous of those people and very, I've caught myself lucky when I can work with people who speak three, four, five, six languages. But just considering with translation, if for a translator, if you're working between two languages, you are really developing a strong, strong, strong understanding of the narrative location of the source culture um, and then the narrative location of the target culture. I use narrative location, um, that term um, based on um, some uh, Mona Baker's Translation and Conflict. She, she's got a great book, um, Translation and Conflict, in which she talks about the fact that we are, as actors in the world, we are basing our entire understanding and our entire worldview on our narrative location or within our culture, all of the stories that are coming at us about who we are within society, et cetera, et cetera. And so for translators, you are really embedding yourselves in the one source culture and one target culture in a very simplistic example. Of course, for Spanish, it would be about 20 uh, uh, cultures that you could potentially have to understand, um, but we'll just go with a really simple example. So for a project manager, um, I really rely on translators who have that deep understanding of two cultures because on my side what I have to do I have to take a much more generalist approach to language and cultures in that um, I'm managing um, anywhere up to project projects into anywhere up to 60 80 languages and so I don't get to develop that deep deep understanding of a single culture that doesn't mean that I don't have to develop any sort of understanding of culture I have to sort of be a jack of all trades, be a chameleon in a sense, um, so that when I am talking to individuals from um, one location, I'm using, or if I'm talking to uh, individuals from China, for example, I'm going to use um, different strategies in communication than I'm going to use when I'm talking with individuals from the United States. Um, in the United States, we tend to want to get to business really, really quickly, and that can be offensive for a lot of other cultures. And so that's something that I need to be aware of when I'm communicating with people from um, China, for example, if, if um, you know, that would almost take them aback a little bit to have communication enter into the business realm so quickly. So not only, you know, I'm, I'm understanding that about, for example, Chinese culture, but then I'm also sort of trying to develop an understanding of what's the reality of um, African cultures. If I am working in two languages like Kinyarwanda or something like that, I need to understand what are the technology um, realities within countries. I need to understand if I'm working with somebody um, who is translating into Hmong. Hmong is a language that it very recently had a writing system assigned to it. So there's no, it's a language where the um, sort of words, the written words right now, there's no sort of standardization across how, or there is standardization, of course, but it's very, very fluid how concepts are referred to because be, with the writing system being developed so recently, um, it, it just, it's going to take some time before certain terminology solidifies itself. And this is something that I've heard in the legal realm and specifically where you'll have a Hmong interpreter go to court and there's simply not words for some legal concepts that we have in the United States. So these are things that I need to be aware of as a project manager so I can make sure to provide the people that I'm working with 
all of the resources that they need in order to perform their job well. If I don't understand these things, projects can go sideways, sideways really quickly because I haven't I haven't accounted for all of those aspects of culture that need to be occulted or accounted for. Um, so for me as well, since I, as a project manager, am managing, let's say I'm managing 15 projects at a single time. Let's say those 15 projects are in 15 different languages. That means each time I think about one of those 15 projects, I need to be able to switch my mentality to the cultural narrative and the subject domain narrative of that project. And so one of the challenges for project managers is, I mean, something as simple as email communication, where you receive an email from a translator who says, it just says something like, the subject line will say something like, please help. And then the email will say something like, I don't understand what the term, um, whatchamacallit means. And so for me as a project manager, since I'm managing 15 projects, since I receive that piece of communication and it's not labeled really, really explicitly, it takes me more time to kind of figure out, okay, what project is this? You know, it takes me time. It takes me more time when, when something as simple as an email communication isn't really explicit and labeled just explicitly. It takes me time to kind of switch gears from, whatever previous project of those 15 projects I was running to that, to that project. It'll take me some time to say, okay, what project is this person talking about? Where did this term come from? Um, what source file are they talking about? So the more quickly, I just think in, in email and commun communication in particular, the more explicit that you can be, hi, I'm having a problem with this specific file in this term on page this, 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 and this, then you are allowing, you're facilitating communication. You're allowing somebody to take that email and immediately situate themselves in the, the context of the project. Um, other things I think it would be great for translators to know, project, man, as project managers, we love you. You are, uh, if you're a translator, you're highly qualified in two different languages. You understand the cultural systems of two different languages. You are a subject matter expert. And for me, um, especially at one of my last gigs was working with um, texts in mechanical engineering where I literally did not understand what the, I could read the words on the page, but I literally did not understand even what the English was saying. And so when I can work with a highly qualified translator on that kind of content, it just, the sense of relief and the sense of confidence that I get from that is incredibly beneficial, um, of course, to the project for a number of reasons. Um, but my role as the project manager then, since I don't have that sort of real detailed understanding of what's happening, is to collect information, be the central point of communication among all of the project team members so that um, I'll have a, pro a translator working on a document and then they'll kind of report back to me on an issue that they're seeing and maybe I'll need to report that issue back to the sales team so the sales team can report that issue back to the client or maybe the quality reviewer is seeing a problem with uh, inconsistencies in source terminology, which have caused inconsistencies in target terminology. And so for me, I'm a, I'm a surveyor of the project. I'm looking big picture as a project manager, collecting feedback from each of the individuals who are participating in the project and making sure that that feedback is disseminated to everyone who needs to receive the, the feedback. So as translators, the more like if you're running into issues on a project, I absolutely want to know about that as a project manager. I, I tell students as well, 
that when I, as a project manager, the first, the team that I make friends with first when I uh, start in a new role is uh, I make friends with the quality reviewers first, 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 for sure, because um, they are the first line of defense against a product that has been um, developed externally, and they are the first people who are seeing the product on an actual line-by-line basis, on a word-by-word basis. They're the first people that first line of defense on quality control. Um, They're the first people who see the product that has resulted from all of the planning that I put into the project, Um, timelines, budgets, specifications, et cetera, et cetera. And so, yeah, it's just the project manager is very much collecting feedback from everyone and just making sure that that feedback is going where it needs to go so that ultimately projects can keep moving forward. Let's get back to the 15 different projects at the same time. How do you context switch and not go crazy? How do you not go crazy? How do you context switch? It sounds very stressful. You context switch by developing really, really good documentation. Uh, If you don't have things documented, then they're not, it's not, I mean, if you haven't written it down, it's not a thing. I guess. So you start off by developing a really strong specification form where you are gathering all of that important information that you need for a project to move forward. Um, So you're gathering the needs requirements from your sales team and from the clients. You're gathering um, maybe linguistic issues that might pop up on a job from the translators. You're asking the quality reviewers, hey, do you, is there any are there any potential potential issues you see with this that, that we should account for in the specification form? And then once you have that document, um, just that act of developing the full specification form, the full set of documentation kind of embeds the information in your mind a lot more. So it's almost like studying for an exam. You, you put together an outline of what you plan to do. You study it and kind of um, you just track track progress. And so without developing those sorts of strong pieces of documentation, it just, like things are more scattered in your mind. So I, th- I think with documentation too, it's a matter of taking um, all of these very small details on projects that pop up and um, might be important, might not be important, and making sure that you're gathering those in a centralized location so you can um, stay organized and keep projects moving forward. So this is something as simple as having a queries log that every single person on the team has access to. And each time they have a query on the project, they log it in the queries log so that everyone can see the query who is working on the project. Um, Everyone on the team who's working on the project can see the response to the query. So you have accountability. You're not losing that detail. It's not a random question that has come through email and then you forget to respond to it because you're receiving a million emails. It's, it's in a location where everyone expects it to be. And then you're eliminating as well the same question being asked multiple times because it's everyone can see, oh, that issue has already been responded to in that, that piece of documentation. Um, there's just so much, the documentation side of things is incredibly, incredibly important. And then not only documenting, but making sure that the documents are easily locatable by everyone who is working on a project. So when doing that sort of switching, if it takes you 15 minutes to find the documents that you've developed when you're trying to jump from one project to the next, you're something, there's something ineffective about the way that you've organized your documentation structure. It should be 
always very, very easy for every single person who is working on a project to find all of the information that they need on that project, you know, in a central location where they expect it to be. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's switch gears for a moment and talk about afterwards translations. Can you tell us more about what it is that you do? Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about my company, Afterwards Translations. I primarily work with Spanish to English translation. Right now, my primary domain is in personal documents. So I work with those documents that allow um, or that facilitate the movement of people worldwide. Um, I work primarily with transcripts and things like that so that um, Spanish-speaking folks who come to the United States can um, have their diplomas and degrees ready to be able to go on to get further education and, um, yeah, be able to participate in society. And so it's, I'm very, very, very happy to be working in that domain primarily. I think the move, free movement of people throughout the world is an awesome thing that we should all be working toward making sure it happens more. We don't want to close borders. We want to open borders. I also um, do some subtitling work and um, it's a field that I have recently gotten into. So that's, I'm, I'm really pleased as well to be learning new skills and working, working in that field and kind of dealing with the linguistic challenges of um, taking meaning and boiling it down to uh, I mean, 30 characters, 35 characters, is, it's a really interesting problem. And then, of course, my core competencies are in project management, process improvement, um, consulting, training, all those sorts of things. So um, I'm very, very passionate about processes and um, making processes more efficient so that people can make more money. So if um, there's organizations out there that um, needed some consulting on how to make things more efficient. I, I could help with a time study or something like that, which is what we're, we're doing in my advanced project management class now. What is that? A time study? Mm-hmm. Time studies are, um, a time study is something that was uh, it originally used in industrial processes. So what you do is you essentially um, watch a process. So if you're doing this in an industrial setting, you would literally sit next to the person who is performing a process and time how long it takes them to do each step of that process so that you can see, is there any room for improvement in the way that this process is being handled? And you do time studies across a wide range of individuals. So you want to make sure that you have a good representative sample. So you'll have, you want to make sure that you are I mean, you don't want to just measure the uh, process times of the best performer or the worst performer. You want, you know, a wide range of uh, performers. And, and I shouldn't even say best performer or worst performer. I just, I mean, people do things at different speeds and people do things in different ways. But we, you somehow have to come, out, come up with order out of that. And so based on the results that you see, you can start to make tweaks, very small tweaks to processes in order to eliminate repetitions and to make sure that um, processes are running efficiently. Um, back to the time when we met at the ATA conference uh, in New Orleans. In your session, um, you talked about the need for understanding of the complexities of the project manager jobs and the need for more education. Is there something we're missing in the existing courses on project management and localization? And if so, what is it? 
Yes, there is a lot missing on the coursework in localization and project management. There's a lot missing. I think we have um, within the United States specifically, I couldn't speak um, real knowledgeably about worldwide trends, but within the United States, we can see right now this trend where language education itself is not getting the funding that it needs. And so enrollment is down. And that's something that um, you all also interviewed Winnie Hay at the ATA conference on her session about that diminishing language education that we're seeing in the U.S. and sort of what are the skills that and, and subjects that people need to learn. Um, so, of course, that's the backdrop for all of this. We're simply, we're unfortunately in the U.S. at least, we're not allocating budgets on a governmental level to education like we should be. Um, and then we're somehow expecting that without that education, we're going to be able to be competitive in a worldwide economy, but that's probably too big picture. So within project management and localization, specifically what we're missing are educational programs. So um, the graduate degree of the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey is the only full-fledged degree in localization project management that I am aware of in the world. Other programs focus on translation, which is awesome. Translation programs are amazing. And those translation programs um, often do have at least one uh, CAT technology class, one computer-assisted translation technology class, and one project management class. But that's the extent of the training in sort of localization engineering and localization management. And there's a great, um, if you go to Gala's website, they have a great infographic where you can take a look at the majority of the, they've sort of collected the um, educational programs that there are around the world and they have links, you can go see those programs, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So with, when looking in the United States translation programs, I think um, according to that Gala website, there's maybe 10 or 15 translation programs in the United States, as opposed just to kind of give a point of comparison, think of all of the different universities that you can go to to study business. Um, you can only go to 15 or so programs in the United States to study um, translation. And then when it comes to localization project management, the, the training is nearly inexistent um, with the exception being the program at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. So when you look at those programs that are available as well, again, it's a lack of depth in the training. So localization project management requires a wide, wide range of competencies, including um, subject matter expertise, that ability to influence without having formal advisory authority over the people that you are working with. Um, you need to understand technology, you need to understand languages, you need to understand translation, you need to understand culture, you need to be able to set budgets, timelines, you need to, I mean, the wide range of competencies that are necessary in order to practice professionally as a localization project manager are just, it's so complex and it's so specialized. And so when you look at a program like the um, TLM program, the Translation and Localization Management Program here at MISS, you do, I mean, it's got a great deal of depth when it comes to localization and project management. So for example, the classes that I am teaching, I'm teaching um, the localization project management class. And then I also teach um, specialized project management courses, such as uh, terminology management, talent management, 
um, advanced project management. And then I'm also um, going to be developing a quality management course for the courses that I'm running. And so, I mean, this is, I look at the courses I'm running and then I look at the courses that my colleagues within this program are running. And it's just, it's really cool the wide range of skills that, that are being taught and accounted for in localization project management here within this program. Um, in terms of the advanced project management classes that I'm teaching, what we are trying to do right now is we are trying to take a look and survey the industry, find holes within the industry so that we can help start filling those gaps. So one of the projects that's ongoing that we are working on over here and that I presented on at ATA 59 was the um, establishing some core competencies, some standardized core competencies for project managers. So I can say the um, advancements we made in that last year was we did our first round of um, job description collection. And from those job descriptions, we got about 70 of them. And then we analyzed those for the kinds of skills that um, employers are looking for in this contemporary environment. And so based on that analysis, we were able to identify seriously like 20, 30 areas of competencies that project managers need to have. And so now we're moving forward with that research. Um, there is um, each year we plan to collect job descriptions so we can kind of keep an eye on the trends on the job requirements over sort of a long period of time. And then we'll also be developing uh, surveys that we can send out to industry stakeholders so that they can um, have a chance to say what they believe the core competencies are in localization project management. And this is something that I hope to present on at ATA 60. Um, we're also working on, in my advanced localization project management class, we're working right now on a code of ethics for professional practice of localization project management. So I think we see across all of these different organizations, um, there's a lot of codes of ethics available for um, translation itself from the ATA, from uh, organizations like the AIIC, um, GALA, FIT, all of these organizations have um, codes of ethics for professional practice for either interpretation or translation um, within a specific domain or just as overarching guidelines for professional practice. And that's something that we don't have in localization project management. We don't have that set of guidelines for professional practice that all of us sort of agrees to. And so that's something that we're working on in um, the advanced class as well. So there's, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. And the more, more education and training we can get across uh, practitioners, I think, the better off we will be in the field. Yes, I remember that the list of different competences was quite a long one. Yeah. And at the same time, um, just one program that would uh, that is specifically targeting localization project managers. Do you feel like it's connected to the general attitude towards uh, language professionals? Uh, on your website, you mentioned that part of your core mission is to elevate the status of professionalism of those in the fields of localization and translation that make communication possible. So the, the, there's a long question, <laughs> sorry. No, that's great. And I appreciate your line of questions here that, that you, these are, um, these are hardball questions. These are not softball questions. I appreciate it. Um, 
So as far as um, do I think that the status of professionalism of those in our field, do I think it will elevate or, um, yeah, do I think if, do I think that will happen? I do very much. I think it's happening already that our status of professionalism is um, being elevated. I think um, when thinking about professionalism and that sort of status, um, what we can think about is not really a destination that we're trying to reach, but it's ongoing sort of messaging. And so membership in a, uh, a organization like the American Translators Association is so very important because that messaging needs to be consistent about uh, across the practitioners in a field. And um, we just sort of need to all keep talking about the um, requirements and all of these skills that we need to have in order to practice within our roles. Um, there's really, a, I think if you look at the sort of the shift in how people are talking about project management and even translation, there's been a lot of really interesting things happening in this last year. Um, for example, getting that, having the um, interpreter for the meeting between Donald Trump and the, um, the it was the Russian interpreter who was then being asked to, um, you know, to disclose what had happened in that meeting. So that sparked a conversation that very much um, shed a spotlight on the field of, of interpretation and translation and localization services. And there's just, there's advocacy that is happening in so many different places that, that talks about that need for um, specialist skills and training, including in the standards, including in um, organizations that are um, providing research on the field, such as the um, CSA and NIMSI, and there's just, it's moving, it's moving in that direction. We just all have to keep repeating ourselves and saying the same thing. To wrap up our uh, discussion, uh, we wanted to ask you what advice you would give to a freelancer who wants to offer localization project management services. Yeah, and I would give the same advice that I um, would give to those who are interested in joining the field of translation. If you're somebody who's bilingual and you're thinking you want to be a translator, you should go out and get formal training in order to practice in that role. The same with localization project management. If you, It's an entirely different skill set than freelance translation, um, and you do need training to practice professionally. So if you are interested in working as a localization project manager, um, get training. If you, there's no training available, which um, for um, in a lot of regions, um, you know, there, there will be kind of that beginning um, intro to CAT and intro to uh, project management classes that you can get in um, the educational programs that are available. Uh, so if there's not localization classes available through um, through the programs that are in your area, I would encourage people to reach out to those educational programs and ask for that kind of training. I'd also encourage people who are interested in the field to reach out to their um, governmental representatives, especially if you're located in the United States and just, we all need to talk about how important having language education available is, especially to our field, but given global economics and we all, I think if we're all asking for more training and localization management as well, that, that it can only spur the creation of more educational programs. Thank you so much, Elena. It was a pleasure talking to you and uh, thanks for finding time to meet us uh, on our podcast. Thank you so much, Veronica and Ekaterina. It's always a pleasure to talk with you both. And um, yeah, you're, you're doing great things. Thanks so much for the podcast and, and for your work um, with the ATA. Thank you so much for coming. It was a pleasure.